Hello and welcome back to Metastation. We are returning at long last after a uh, lengthy unplanned on hiatus with our podcast for episode 112, We Are Grounders Part 1. Uh, my name is Erin. I am an English professor in Mississippi. Hi, I'm Claire. I'm a writer in Portland, Oregon. And um, today, we're this is going to be a little bit of a different podcast. We, we really wanted to get this one in. We wanted to get one more of our season one podcast in before the end of the year and get up to folks before Christmas. But because it's the Christmas season and our lives are crazy and everything's crazy, um, basically, like, we have an hour and 45 minutes to record this podcast, and then we're not going to edit it. So as you're listening to it... <laughs> Um, you're going to hear <laughs> all of our weird rambling and asides and all of the ums and likes and ahs and like started sentences that don't go anywhere that normally get cut out. So this is the fun podcast. Like our, our Christmas present to you is for you to get to hear yes. exactly how dumb we actually are before <laughs> editing happens. <laughs> so much effort goes into making these sound like clean and polished and smart and filtering out background noise and visits from Aaron's dog and doors slamming and things like that and we don't have time for any of that so this is going to be like you're just eavesdropping on Claire and Aaron on the phone (laughs) yes so this is kind of like a backdoor little also little like pod uh uh, edit crew um appreciation podcast so as you're listening to this if you're thinking like man their verbal tics are really annoying and I wish someone would have cut out that weird thing where Aaron like stopped and talked to her dog for a minute then just think to yourself (laughs) there's a wonderful crew of ladies from Twitter who volunteer their time to help us edit our podcasts. Um, and editing is a thankless and repetitive job. And they do a wonderful, wonderful job making us way more listenable. So if you're listening to this and you're like, oh my God, I wish they would start editing again. Just like, <laughs> just send that positive energy out into the universe. Maybe we'll put on yes. Twitter, uh, we'll put uh, like the names of our edit crew up and you guys can like send them thank you notes. Um, <laughs> uh, okay. They so, are truly good humans. They are, they are wonderful. Alrighty. All right, so let's get started where the episode gets started up on the Ark um, in the council room with Jaha telling everyone that they're totally boned so they should get their bone <laughs> on um, before they die. Uh, <laughs> and I have a question that I did not think about before watching it this time, and that is, why is Kane the only one sitting at the council table with Jaha? There's like a room full of people. There's like 30 people. And like right. five open chairs, and yet Kane is the only one sitting there, looking kind of as if he's been called into the principal's office. This is like really, it doesn't matter. I was just really bothered by it this time. I was like, what's going on? <laughs> so I, so the theory on when we, when you tweeted about this, the theory that somebody had on on Twitter was, did Diana successfully managed to execute her plan which was to bump off all the counselors so so like the reason abby isn't sitting and i'm assuming the reason everyone kind of gathered in the doorway aren't sitting is because the table's only for elected members of the council and perhaps that's a visual to kind of drive home the fact that kane's the only one that survived Mm, okay yeah i mean i could buy that but it just like it just but it isn't looks like Jaha and Kane. Yeah, yeah, I know. But it winds up just sort of looking like Jaha and Kane are just like 
we get to sit and you plebes don't. <laughs> right. <laughs> At our huge table. Yeah. <laughs> but I mean, like, I, I, yeah, okay. I accept that as a headcanon that it's like a sign of respect for the dead, that they're leaving the chairs open to sort of signify those who were lost in the, uh, in the bombing. Yeah. Although it could just be like, then my question is sort of like, you, you guys could have just, you could have picked a smaller room, but that's fine. <laughs> <laughs> or a bigger room. Like, why are yeah. you even in that um, room? If no one can sit at the table, you could just like set up a bunch of chairs. And it's not like they're being super secret anymore, you know? Anyway. Yeah, that's true. Sh- it's not. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm just going to go ahead and blame Jaha uh, as, as is my want. I'm just going to say it was Jaha's like weird, you know, I don't know, some sort of vestige of a power trip. One last power trip before their final journey to the ground. Oh, <laughs> uh, Jaha's going to Jaha. Jaha's going to Jaha. Um, yeah. Uh, so I I really love this, um, this arc, this section of the arc storyline. I... Um, I had a lot of, uh, when I first was watching it, I remember, I don't think I, I don't think I knew at this point, I think I had, I had a sense that like the people on the arc didn't die only because I feel like I remember like continually asking you over and over again, anytime something bad happened to Abby, like, does Abby die? Does Abby die? And you were like, no, 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 I finished season two. She's still alive. So I knew that they weren't going to like, you know, it wasn't going to be like some grim, terrible, like everyone on the arc is dead, but I genuinely did not have any kind of a mental picture at all when I first watched this episode the very first time of how the fuck they were going to get to earth, except that I had some sense that they probably were, you know, that that was like, yeah, that's probably how this is going to end, but I have no picture of it. And so the slow kind of, um, so the way it starts with, you know, I think something that's, that's really interesting in this episode is the split between who is kind of a resigned fatalist and who is like, fuck no, until my last dying breath, I'm going to keep trying shit. So we have like all, and really all five of the adults in this storyline got some, got some really interesting moments where those lines were drawn pretty clearly where you have Jaha and then also both Jackson and Sinclair have kind of at the beginning in their first scenes we see them have like they have made their peace with the fact that this is the end like mm-hmm. they're done they're done trying it feels futile they're watching the people that they work with sort of spiral into what they think is like insanity and like you know Sinclair is like please like can you please just stop trying things that aren't gonna work and dismiss me so I can go spend my last 45 minutes of life with my <laughs> wife I feel you know, so bad for Sinclair in that scene. I mean, like, oh this is God. definitely, yeah. you know, like, like totally redeemed, awesome Kane. He's trying to save everyone. But at the same time, we're just like, what the fucking Kane? Come on, please, man. Just, like, yeah. let him go to his <laughs> wife, let him go for home. God's sake. <laughs> yeah. I know you have nothing left in your life, Kane. But some people right. do. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Uh, I know. And and then poor Jackson, who, like, is trying to, you know, convince Abby, like, you didn't fail by killing this patient because she's going to be dead by the end of the day anyway. So, like, you right. didn't, like, this isn't on you. You don't need to take emotional responsibility for this loss because, like, we're all going to be dead. So, like, you know, and, and Abby just, like, can't. She can't. 
She yeah. can't think yeah. like that. Kane can't like they can't just stop trying. But I think what's interesting is um, the the flip. So Jaha is the only one who really changes, you know, mm-hmm. Abby, Abby and Kane from the beginning, you know, we don't have a ton of arc in this, in this, um, episode we have, I think maybe three scenes. We have the council scene, we have Jackson and Abby, and then we have the kind of the end, you know, sort of segment. But so Jaha is yeah. the only person who, who actually goes through any kind of an arc of evolution in this episode. And I think it's really interesting that, it comes through the the Clark and Wells home video moment. Yeah, you know, the, yeah, the, yeah, yeah. And like, like, I had this like really like, emotional moment when I was watching, realizing like, oh my god, like in his own little way, Wells is Wells saves the people on the Ark, you know, because it's because it's Jaha's love mm-hmm. for Wells and his decision to watch this video and to try yep, to like, yep have a moment reconnecting with the what what's left of his son you know what's available to him of wells that gives him the idea and i just have this moment i'm like wells you know bless well he's dead and he's still saving yeah him, you know well and and also that in a in a really lovely sort of full circle way that you know and i'm i'm getting like weepy just thinking about it but like <laughs> Jake also like Jake completed his right. work to like be the person to say like to to get humanity to the ground the work that he was doing trying to save people you know like t- trying to tell them about the oxygen scrubbers you know so that they could figure yeah. out another solution it's what Jake it's said telling... to Clark yeah 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 I never thought about that but you're totally right yeah she's like, like my dad two, said it was the, the thrusters and he's like yes yeah it's the it's the two people who died who like started all this who mm-hmm. are the ones kind of even like posthumously the memory uh-huh. of them and and what they left behind is what saves all of them and I'm I'm getting like verklempt this is <laughs> it's like just I know little, one of those little things I think about that's like that makes the first this makes season one of the show like so special and so well executed and so just like. Mm-hmm beautifully like ultimately kind of comes together so beautifully as a whole it's just little touches like that and it's so lightly done you know it's like they, it's not it's not like dwelt upon or hammered home or anything like that but it's just like it's just there you know it's just like a little detail mm-hmm. character details that kind of uh like tie together the plot and those character threads so seamlessly um mm-hmm. and so like meaningfully and so poignantly um yeah. <laughs> Having feelings. <laughs> and it's just really um it's also a nice little a little moment of of sort of the story kind of coming full circle in that you know Clark playing a role in getting the arc down to the ground both in the way that she serves as this sort of the force that's continually motivating Abby in everything that Abby does. And mm-hmm. then also her being, you know, her being wired into this moment with Wells and, you know, and Jaha and Jake and all this stuff. So it's just, it's really like, I think it's, I think it's interesting that we see, you know, Jaha is like, he's totally at peace with his decision. He's like ready to die. You know, he's, he's, permanently ready to martyr himself at a moment's notice that's jaha you know um <laughs> and 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 so i i think it it's just it's a it's a lovely moment but it's also really i think it's kind of a noteworthy um 
transition, I think, moment for him that we see. We don't, it takes a lot when Jaha is sort of in that, like, kind of, I've made my decision place to kind of kick him back out of it. And it usually is, like, those emotional connections. You know, he was totally ready to go to Section 17 and die. And it was, um, you know, it was Abby who talked him out of it. You know, it's Mm -hmm. that sort of, like, so I think I think it was so I like that moment here and I like that we see him and that and that lift like the the it's so like visceral like that moment when you realize watching it like he has a plan he's thought of something yeah. you know and yeah, and yeah. that whole <laughs> and that kind of like and then and the music building and he comes in to the um earth monitoring station and it's like like what if we tried not to save it? And you're like, oh my God. Like, it's just so like, <laughs> like it, the moment where you realize like he has a plan and there's hope and it's fucking crazy. Like, it's just completely <laughs> insane. You know, like 95% of the ship is going to blow apart. And he's like, do you think you're smart enough to find the 5% that won't? And you're just like, he's bananas. Like, this is batshit insane, Thelonious. But it's also, you know, it's kind of, it's we we get so many we get we get both of the different sides of him you know we get we get balls to the wall crazy plan Jaha and we also get sort of you know uh, serenely resigned to his own fate I can't be bothered to you know like I'm done trying you know I'm checked out kind mm-hmm. of that version of Jaha um and and so it's just so but I but I remember you know this is one of those moments where where you, I remember that in season for most of season one I liked Jaha much better than I liked Kane like by this point I think I, I, yeah. I had you know I come around I liked Kane a lot more by the end but but this is the Jaha that we liked you know this is the Jaha who who sort of has that moment where he's like, I'm just going to sit here and drink my scotch and watch my home videos and then like suffocate quietly at my desk, <laughs> transitioning back into, you know, into the Jaha who like remembers what his job is, which is to save these people and is willing to kind of jump off a cliff and do something insane. So well, I, I like also think this is I also think this is like a really nice um, encapsulation of like, like this is the this is the batshit Jaha whose batshittery actually makes him such an inspiring and incredible leader, you know? And, and there's a, it's interesting because like there's a balance to that, you know? And I think we've seen him over the course of four seasons kind of tip on both sides of it. And even in season one, you sort of are seeing him, um, you know, tipping sort of back and forth and he goes off the rails and to season two and season three. But I think here's the moment where you see like, so, like, this this is the seeds of the Jaha who is, like, who will really do, like, en- any crazy-ass thing that he thinks is going to save his people. Like, anything, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. But also, this is, this is kind of, like, the perfect example of, like, there's cunning and there's smarts and there's brilliance in that batshit plan. And, mm-hmm. um, and there's, and, and, like, the charisma that he has to sell that, you know, and to like yes. get people to go along with it. Um, and, you know, that's the kind of moment I was like, man, like Jaha is crazy, but like this is the moment where you're sort of like, but but you can see how in a in a situation like this, he's exactly the kind of leader you have to have, you know? You have to have someone who's willing to take that insane risk because right. simply because he's like any life is better than no life. And I think like later on, you know, when you put when you put that like around the bend, you know, you, when you put Jaha in that kind of, like, level of crazy in situations where it isn't literally either everyone dies or some people die. Um, right. Or some people probably die, as he as he says. Um, 
into a situation where like the stakes are not that extreme in black and white, then it becomes a you know then Jaha is willing mm-hmm. to be like, well, if we lose a few dozen people, whatever, you know, like that's like less right. cool, you know. <laughs> there are other right. situations where that doesn't work out ethically, but like this is the situation <laughs> where not only does it work out, but like actually, you really need someone who's willing to be that to take that exactly. insane of a risk and like convince people. Yeah. So this is kind of I think this is almost. For me, this might almost be like Jaha's peak moment. You know, like he's being, he is peak Jaha. He's the most Jahaiest of Jahas. And it's like, yes. this is the moment when that is what they need. And this is the moment when being that guy is actually like totally heroic and amazing. And, um, and then like, you know, and then, and then subsequently it just kind of goes wrong for various reasons. Although I think like his, his motivations never change, right? It's just like the situation changes around him and what he's willing to do. Well, and to, it's also, I think to achieve his aims, um, becomes, you know, appropriate to a later or greater or lesser degree, which is interesting. Well, and I think that I, what's interesting about, about this, this version of crazy Jaha too. And, um, and maybe and it's it's been it's been a really long time. Like we've been doing season one in such fits and starts that that part of me is like, am I misremembering this? But I sort of feel a little bit like, um, like season one, Shaha. One of the things I think is really interesting about him, or about I guess our picture of how he perceives himself, is that his vision of what his job was going to be as chancellor, just because he was like. He was a transitional generation, you know, like he wasn't, yeah. he was never supposed to have to do this. He was not the chancellor that they elected thinking this is the guy who's going to have to come up with a crazy plan to get us to the ground. This is like Mr. Like follow the rules, stick with the book, follow the X's charter, right. you know, like keep the lights on and the water running. And then whoever has a job, you know, two or three chancellors after you, they're going to have to deal with the hard stuff. You know, he was not prepared right. for this. And so watching him, um, so I think I think up until like up until this moment, I think that kind of like fatalistic, um, you know, there's a sort of follow the rules, that version of Jaha, you know, I think I think that leads very nicely into the sort of like, of course, his response would be like, well, we're screwed. You know, like, so make your peace, right. go yeah, say yeah. goodbye to your families, <laughs> we're done. Like, that That tracks with the Jaha who basically was like, you know, this is, like, we're, like, we were a transitional generation. This was not a decision that was supposed to be on us. You know, I'm just sort of doing what I do. So, like, he, you know, he does things that are extreme. Like, the culling was extreme, but it mm-hmm. was extreme in a super logical way. Like it was extreme in its, in its coldness and its pragmatism. And it was right. not extreme in a, in a bonkers think outside the box kind of way. And so I, I almost wonder, but, but I mean, like, maybe I'm wrong, if I'm calling, missing, but like, but, but remember the calling was Kane's idea. Really? Like Jaha eventually right. acceded to it, but it wasn't Jaha's idea. He was like way. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. It yeah, was, yeah, yeah. that was, that is Kane's problem solving tactics. Right. Yeah. 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 Um, but yeah, but it, but so it feels so it feels to me like like is this the first um the first glimpse that we get in the show of that of that crazy version of Jaha who who now will try anything despite how, you know, 
how crazy or off the wall or risky or dangerous it seems. Like, is this sort of the the first taste we get of the Jaha who, like, you know, who finds the bunker, who goes after Allie, who does, like, who's sort of relentless in pursuit of things that everyone else thinks are totally nuts, who has completely thrown the rulebook to the wind, you know? Um, yeah, yeah. Like, like the, the Jaha who's always presenting something as a plan and everyone else is looking at him like, are you fucking kidding me? That's your plan? Like, that Jaha, I feel like this is sort of our first <laughs> taste of him, you know? Um, so I, here's a conspiracy theory. Great. Or like wacko crazy headcat. So what if it's something in that really old whiskey in the baton? Because he didn't start thinking like this until he started drinking that whiskey. And then it's after he's drinking that whiskey when they're gone in the next episode when he starts hallucinating the baby and thinks about mm. shooting him towards himself towards the guy. So what if he's like, like poisoned or something? Mm. Like there's some mind altering substance in that whiskey. And this is a different job. You know, <laughs> so I, so to, to, to support this conspiracy theory, isn't, <laughs> isn't it sort of implied um, at some point, either in this season two finale or season three that like, like, does Allie claim some agency for Jaha getting to the ground on the missile? Yeah. She yeah because she says she brought him down on the right. she needed the missile and so she brought him down and there's red on that bottle so like what okay if, yeah did Allie find a way to like program herself into the whiskey yeah or did Allie have like <laughs> a like did she have like a was there like a mole was there like an Allie controlled like I don't know was she in the computer I don't know. You know, mm. I mean, well, the whiskey's the whiskey's ninety seven years old, so maybe it had yes. some kind of nano robots in it. I don't know, <laughs> like some kind of Becca, like Becca nano robots, just like lying like, in yeah, wait. Yeah, like nano versions of the chip, just like yeah. tiny, tiny ones. <laughs> I he... mean, like I. It it is the real like this checks out because I don't we're not ever given any other canon explanation for what the hell she means when she's like you know like you're welcome from bringing you to Earth and it's like unless you were the Wells hallucination which right, would require yeah. some explaining how did you do that but if she was the booze yeah all right yeah okay until this need- is officially refuted by yes. Jason Rothenberg right. this is what we're going with. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, okay, Jason, you have to come up on the podcast chip. so we can ask you. Yes, was <laughs> was he drinking Liquid Alley? <laughs> <laughs> and we thought really she thing. made him crazy in season three, but she really made him crazy in season one, and he was just playing yes. a long game the whole time. Exactly. Right. I, well, he did like it was like subconscious, and she had to get him to the mansion to like fully activate. Yeah. nanobots inside of his brain mm-hmm. and uh yes all right accepted he- <laughs> headcanon accepted yes <laughs> yes I, so i guess it's a really good thing then that when we see bellamy pick up that bottle on the ring at the end of season four it's empty unless it's the bottle itself maybe it's not the booze in the bottle oh. what if it was the bottle itself was like made of like a microchip like a chip 
chip. Yeah. But yes. in like bottle form and like it's soaked into the whiskey. Ooh, and maybe in season five we'll get like, you know, like Amori gets re-chipped or something because she touches the bottle. This is very exciting. Oh, but Bellamy <laughs> touched it first. So Bellamy's going to be Oh, yeah. Oh, my God. Chip oh my God. Bellamy will be a sight to but see. But he has a beard. He has a beard. That means he's evil. So the beard is telling <gasps> us that it's evil Chip oh, Bellamy. <laughs> evil. <laughs> I can't believe how amazing we are at theories. <laughs> I know. All right. Nobody needs to watch season five. You already cracked it. <laughs> yeah, we got it. We got it, guys. <laughs> We've solved all your problems. <laughs> uh, uh, in all seriousness, um, I actually do think, like, watching this episode, I had, like, a, a lot of moments that really, I thought, like, tied right back into the end of season four in some really poignant ways. So, like, one of them is the baton, the mm-hmm. bottle. Which we get, you know, like I said, it's on the mm-hmm. um, on the windowsill at the very end when Bellamy's looking back down on the, you know, burning earth. Um, he picks mm-hmm. it up from where Jaha left it. Um, so that's like a callback to this, uh, you know, to this is the first um, introduction of the baton. Um, but mm-hmm. I also, when the, in Abby and uh, Jackson's scene, which is just like so crushing, um, when Abby breaks down and she starts... You know, because she mm-hmm. real this is she's you realize she's been doing surgery as a way to not think about the fact that she's mm-hmm. going to die, and more specifically that she's going to die without getting to speak to Clark again. You know, mm-hmm. without um, getting to you know, while Clark still hates her, she thinks without yeah. holding her all that stuff, and like it immediately just reminded me, you know, threw me back to the end of season four. Mm-hmm. when they also didn't get to say goodbye. You know, uh, Abby isn't in the final episode at all, and the radio cuts out before Clark is allowed, you know, is able to talk to her. So I just had this moment of, like, mm-hmm. watching Abby have this, like, breakdown of realizing that she'll never see her daughter again, um, which we know won't, you know, it won't last that long, but just thinking about yeah, Abby but they waking don't know up. That. Yeah, but they Yeah, waking up in the bunker, or, or just, like, Waiting for her turn on the radio and then hearing that it cut out and then having to go through that again, you know, and I yeah, just yeah. like, oh God, Abby. Oh God, yeah. <laughs> well, well, you know, the 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 interesting season four parallel that jumped out at me in that in that scene, and I just I mean, I I love that Jackson and Abby scene so yeah. much. Like it's so it's such a beautiful little like it's you know, it's very brief. It doesn't move the plot forward in a huge way, but the depth of character richness for both of them that it gives us and about their relationship and and yeah. who he who he is to her and and um and the depth of his knowledge of an intimacy with Clark you know like all this kinds of is so beautiful but the thing that it made me think of was um you know I was sort of thinking about something I think is really fascinating about Abby is the moments kind of along the way like all along the way in the storyline where we see is her um you know, her sort of dueling identities as both a, a mom and a doctor. And there are mm-hmm. moments where those two sides of her are like ferociously at odds, like in the end of mm-hmm. season four, when she would rather smash the machine than let Clark go through the night blood testing. But mm-hmm. here, what we see is we see both of those two sides of her completely fully merged into one like it is it is the thing that is making her 
the doctor that she is in that moment is because like it's you know because it's a it's a girl it's a little girl it's somebody's daughter there on her table mm-hmm. that she can't save mm-hmm. and all of the things that she is feeling about Clark and her worry for Clark and this kind of big picture abstract sense of all the different ways in which she feels like she's been unable to save Clark and the things she's been unable to protect her from, you know, all the way from Jake's death through to whatever, you know, dangers Clark is facing on the ground that she doesn't even know. It all comes out in that desperation to get like one last injection of epinephrine for this girl who for all she knows will be dead in two days anyway. And just that, like that, that bordering on, you know, hysterical desperation to not let this girl die is, is, you know, at her sort of peak is Abby, the doctor shaped by that, that depth of love and care that she has for everybody and particularly kind of filtered through like it's, it's how she's sort of processing and working out the things she's feeling for Clark, you know, like something that she can control, have control over somebody that she thinks that she can save. And, you know, and so it hits her with that huge of a gut punch, not just because, you know, because she's a person who will do anything to avoid losing a patient. Like we even see that back in the pilot when she, you know, steals all the extra blood to save Jaha, but because Clark is like so viscerally present in that moment and, and Abby's, worry for her and that feeling of powerlessness and that what feels to her like certain knowledge in that moment that there's all of these things she's never going to get to do and say like it's just a really interesting way to sort of um to fuse those two sides of abby those two sort of her kind of two really defining traits over the course of the show as like as a woman as a person like the two kind of things that sometimes are pulling her in really opposite directions you know mm-hmm. and um and so it was, it was interesting it was really interesting to see over in season four you know what happens when those two things are really in tension like they're really at odds with each other and she wants to protect clark but that's also up against the sort of knowledge that she is holding the power to potentially you know unlock a cure that will help all of her people but it, it puts clark in danger what's she gonna do and so it's just sort of, i i so i like the moment just for sort of a way to show us like you know, I think I think everything of who Abby Griffin is as a person is sort of encapsulated really beautifully in that moment. This is who she is as a doctor. This is who she is as a mother. This is who she is with Jackson. This is who she is as a leader who's kind of has like by the end of it, you know, like he kind of helps recenter her and she's sort of like, OK, back to work, you know, do the job. So I just I just love, you know, the the complexity of the way those two different sort of facets of her work together in that scene yeah yeah i think it's a really good way of putting it it's sort of you know all of the kind of core parts of abby coming together in this moment of really intense emotion and and dress you know Mm -hmm. um like it's the sort of idea that like who you are under extreme pressure is kind of like who you are at your core and of course like these are the things that are that are at the core of abby and yeah yeah it's just it's very moving it is and i and i like that the thing I like that the thing that Jackson says to her that kind of lets her be able to, um, you know, breathe through it a little bit more and kind of get herself, you know, centered is him reminding her, like, 
you know, Clark, like the ways that she and Clark are similar, you know, and the things about Clark Mm -hmm. that she got from Abby and, you know, and that the thing that is going to help Clark survive is the fact that both of the Griffin women are just so like fucking nonstop tough you know he's like she's Mm strong-willed like that's like that's how you're protecting her is that you made her into the kind of person who can survive in a hostile environment like this because like she's strong because you're strong too you know and uh, right right. like she we've talked about this before but like they both they have that griffin woman sort of refusal to accept defeat yeah or to accept to sort of like you have to choose this solution or this solution and and and, you know either way you're gonna like lose something you don't want to lose and they're both just sort of like that that tenacity of like, no, I refuse to accept that there's no way out for me mm-hmm. uh, other than this. I mean, that is like literally what, you know, that's like what defines both of them and so much of what they do. And that's that's what keeps them alive. That's what keep Clark's, keeps Clark alive so much yeah. of the time. Um, yeah. Yeah. Which we see so much of in this episode, which is perhaps a yeah. nice transition moment. To, uh, <laughs> Very nicely done. Very because nicely because done. we see like that, that is the clerk who is like on display in this episode. Yeah, for sure. I, you know, watching it this, uh, this episode this time, I don't think it had ever, I hadn't like ever really thought consciously much before about how much this, there's sort of like weird side Two episode side plot with Clark and Finn, you know, getting kidnapped by Anya mm-hmm. and then, you know, sort of running around in this um in this episode. I mean, like, that whole storyline in this episode especially is really just set up for season two. Like it's it's mm-hmm. honestly like it's it's partly to I think to keep Clark out of camp. You know, she can't be there because the whole the right. stuff with Murphy and Bellamy has to play out and it can't play out with her there. But I think like otherwise it's really, it's, you know, it's interestingly, it's a, it's a storyline that's not really primarily about Clark and Finn's relationship or either of their characters in particular. It's about like setting the groundwork of new world building for season mm-hmm. two, because we get the commander, like this is the first, I think the first mention of the commander. Um, and the first hint that there is a kind of like grounder military infrastructure that is like bigger Mm -hmm. is you know it's not merely sort of local or tribal but there's some kind of bigger centralized military organization of some kind where there's someone out there called the commander who can send troops you know in to sort of solve problems that there's sort of larger territorial issues beyond just like Anya and her personal territory Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we get the Reapers and the tunnels and the, you know, the, the trolleys full of bodies dropped out from, uh, Mount Weather. Um, so as it just kind of struck me this time, I was like, all this running around that Finn and Clark do is really just a kind of like tour of here's weird shit that can't be explained right now that is setting up to make sense in the storyline for season two, which I thought was really interesting. Um, and, and like mildly risky. I can't remember if they'd already been renewed at this point, um, when they, when season one was airing, but they were like really doubling down and like, this is where the shit's going, you know, like this, this has to be here because of stuff Mm -hmm. that's going to happen next year, you know? Yeah. I, so this is the first time I, I've, I don't think I had, no, in fact, I, I know I haven't rewatched any of, like, until we started recapping them. I hadn't yeah. re- gone back and rewatched any of season one after I had seen season two. Like, I, I binged mm-hmm. them all, and then I, I haven't gone back and watched them. So, yeah, so I had a very different experience watching this episode 
knowing what was coming than like the first time when you're just sort of like running on pure adrenaline and you're like, what the fuck is that? Right, what yeah. the fuck is that? Yeah. Who are those people? What's going on? <laughs> What's going on? You know? Um, and, and so, yeah, so pulling out little details that I, um, that I hadn't noticed the first time, like I like in, interestingly, like in my head, I think of, or I guess I had come to think of, um, and maybe this is just this is just fandom headcanons. Like maybe it isn't textual anywhere. But thinking of like Anya and Lexa as like people who are like like allies. Like she says, like, you know, like the commander was her second. Like they have this, you know, like like we sort of think of them as like a pair. But the whole reason Tristan is sent to to basically lead the charge on the camp and kill um Clark and Finn, like is because Anya has failed at her job. Like Anya's essentially yeah. being like demoted and replaced by somebody sent specifically by Alexa. So there's a yeah. whole kind of level of like the the humiliation of Anya in her inability to drive out the intruders as like dictated by like you know, by Lexa specifically, I was like, oh, I think like, I mean, obviously we didn't, we didn't know who the commander was at this point, you know, then. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. But not, not having gone back and watched it, I sort of like in my head, think of it as like, you know, like these two women are allies. These two women are like kind of, you know, not peers, but like are in the, you know, part of the same grounder political military hierarchy leadership structure um mm -hmm. and and so it was interesting to be reminded like oh actually no like anya's kind of in the doghouse <laughs> in this episode yeah, right, exactly like anya had yeah. one job and she didn't do it and her people keep dying and these people landed in her watch and lex is back there going like how hard is this there's like 40 of them they're right. kids what the fuck are you doing you know um so right. i had forgotten so that part of it having... and and that sort of yeah an interesting little lead lead into, you know, as we get in season two, the kind of pulling back the lens into more of the complexity of, of ground or social structure. Um, and then, but then also um, one, one little moment that just kind of like hit me with a little, you know, foreshadowing gut punch was when Finn says, what the hell is a Reaper? And Lincoln says like, let's pray, never find out. And I was like, oh no, uh -huh. Lincoln. <laughs> oh no. <laughs> Oh, buddy, Lincoln, I have bad news for you. <laughs> Lincoln, who is this universe's absolute best person. He is like the best person yeah, who exists yeah. in mm -hmm. this entire universe and just gets like fucked over over and over and over again. I know. I was like, this is, <laughs> this hurts. Like, this hurts. Just I'm just like, oh, God. Yeah. <laughs> and, yeah. Also, and, and Luna. I mean, that's, that's another thing, you know, picking up. Luna. Four, yes. That bit of. Uh, yeah foreshadowing this is our first mention of uh well is it first i think maybe second mention of luna i can't remember if he had mentioned i think lincoln mentions her before. to octavia first yeah okay, i think he right. tells her he tells octavia to go to the river and look for luna if something happens to him um or that that's where he's going to take her and then but this, this is, is the first time mention of it when he when he says that he tells us that he has a map in his yeah. book which is what they use to get to luna in um season three um yeah. Yeah, so that was interesting. This, you know, this actually reminded me. Um, you know, one of the things that I, that I sort of like, one of the things that I feel most cheated out of that I really, really wanted to see someday that we will literally never see because they're both dead is, um, I would love like some at some point I really wanted to see some kind of confrontation or some kind of like substantive interaction between Lincoln and Lexa. 
Because yes. you know, when, Link- when Lincoln says here, I w- you know, when they ask Finn and Clark ask him, why are you doing this? And he says, I'm doing this because I think what my people are doing is wrong. I mean, he's mm-hmm. talking about the commander. He's saying right. Lexa, who we eventually find out is like some kind of like Pope queen, you know, like unquestionable leader or whatever. Although, I don't know, since she only united them a couple of years ago, how long that's been a thing this is where the kind of mythology I feel like doesn't really actually work out. The sort of like, there's like two different commanders. There's like the commander who united the clans a few years ago. And then there's the commander who's the sort of like leader of the religion slash, you know, divinely anointed leader person. And like the two halves kind of, I'm like, I have no idea how they match up. Like, is it only tree crew who always had the commander as their unquestioned leader? Or was it everyone? Yeah. And if it was everyone, then why weren't they, why weren't the clans united? Anyway, whatever. So that's the thing that I'm sort of like, yeah. I feel like there are two different mythologies of Commander. Right. One of them is happening here. One of them happens in season three. And I'm not actually certain that they entirely track with one another. But um, but the, the commander that we have here, who's this kind of like more of a military leader, you know, who seems to have command over some kind of unified centralized military whatever you know like she has armies mm-hmm. that she can just send out um right. and the lexa of season two um you know who's a like very sort of pragmatic cutthroat sort of leader you know the lexa who betrays who leaves clark at mount weather mm-hmm. you know the lexa who's versus the lincoln who's uh, who criticizes, who's criticizing her decision here to wipe out um, the hundred and who criticizes at the end of season two, you know, who has that conversation with Indra um, and says to Indra, you know, that her, her betrayal of the alliance, you know, her alliance with Clark is like dishonorable or whatever. Like, I really wanted to have that confrontation, you know, because I feel like yeah, Lexa, yeah. that that version of Lexa and the commander and Lincoln have these like, and Lincoln sort of, you know, as a character who voluntarily removed himself from the society, we don't get the full the full story ever, but we're basically told, like, he left because of this kind of thing. Like, he because he just sort of has these deeply held sort of moral, ethical beliefs that are mm. anathema to the culture that he was raised in. I really wanted to see well, and the two of them go head to head, like, have yeah. a moral debate with each other. And I'm really sad that we never, ever got to see that. Well, and especially because like Lexa is also Tree Crew, like they would yeah. have like grown up together. They like they right. would have, like I mean, like like presumably she was, you know, when she was discovered to be a Nightblood, she was like taken away from Nightblood training. But like they are like clan siblings, like they're from the same right. clan, right. and 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 yet the almost the entirety of their. <clears throat> their relationship, their connection with each other is always kind of like triangulated through Indra a little bit. Um, yeah. And, well, and also the fact that it, the, the fact that Lincoln knew, knows Luna suggests uh-huh. one or both of two things. Either he knew her when she was a nightblood, um, you know, and, and knew her or, or knew her at some point around when she was a nightblood when she was running away and mm. or he when he left tree crew he fled to her but either way he also like he has to know like he has to know luna's story right like he knows that she was in lex's conclave mm-hmm. Lu- oh Luke yeah to that's that. true yeah and he has yeah, to he know would have known what she ran away of, from yeah yes so he has to have known if he knows her and he's friends with her um mm-hmm. and he knows where her where where um flu crew is so he knows so he's been there right like, mm-hmm. he has to know what went down. He knows that she was, he knows that 
Lexa was on track to lose to Luna in that conclave and Luna chose to leave. And he's friends with Luna, not with Lexa, which is like another mm. wrinkle I feel like, you know, we're never going to get that story. But man, I wish I I wish we could. Yeah. Like, yeah. I hadn't, that I, really, I hadn't thought really of it like that before. But yeah, he because he knows that he knows that Luna is a clan leader, which means that he knows that that. She like she takes in refugees, which means that he's morally in sympathy with the people who have like not just Luna, but the fact that there's this whole movement of people who have abdicated from grounder life and chosen not to fight anymore. Yeah, which is something I feel like is was sadly underexplored. You know, we got like the one episode of it. Yeah. Um, And then after that, it was all just kind of like on the downhill to Luna flipping the switch to like fuck that humanity should just be right well and we also it makes me sad that we didn't get more time learning about that sort of opposite like we didn't get to see more of that kind of like tension and debate play out on screen yeah well especially because i'm like the thing i'm thinking of now that i i think hadn't really occurred to me before but like so so everyone in flow crew like you know led by luna but every member of her clan are people who who either like were were born there or many of them were people who left other clans left other lives like luna did and chose to live this kind of countercultural anti-grounder sort of isolated life where they don't mm-hmm. fight they don't hold this in beliefs and yet the commander and the entire sort of social hierarchy of grounder life recognizes them as a clan. They have an ambassador. They have like, like governmental representation. And so it's interesting because it's like technically flow crew and Luna in particular stand for everything that is against like, like not just Lexa, but the entire system that built Lexa, the entire system that yeah. she is a part of, the entire kind of infrastructure of grounder thought and morality and belief and governance, which is based on blood must have blood. And all of Flow Crew has like aggressively self-selected out of that, right. and yet are still given the like respect and dignity like they still have they're still one twelfth of the senate like they still have a vote right you know? right so there's, and yet the com- they're still voting with all the rest of them too like that's the other thing you would you would expect their ambassador to be to yeah behave differently instead of like sort of work apparently like they do in first half of season three in lockstep with all the others that's it's yeah that's something else that sense. i that i yeah that i think is is that i wish we had explored more too was like i um we you know we see we see so little of the individual kind of political beliefs it, clan to clan in terms of ways that they're different from each other we sort of yeah. like they kind of operate as a you know as a block and when there's kind of internal jostling it's not necessarily like specific to each clan like based on their personality it's sort of like we have some clans want this and some clans want that and it's sort of based on just kind of like um, you know, it's just like uh, it is difficult for Lexa to hold that alliance together because everybody mm-hmm. wants different things. But Flow Crew is the one I would argue, the one clan, even in some ways more than Tree Crew, maybe up there with Ice Nation, that is given a distinctly unique personality. Like they have mm-hmm. a whole different 
belief system and code of ethics. And yet, like, so like the, the way Ice Nation is framed as being like qualitatively different in some way than everybody else, you know, like their mm-hmm. relationship with technology, their government structure is different. They don't, they only kind of intermittently recognize the treaty, things like that. So they kind of have that sense of distinctiveness. And part of me and my gut feels like, I wish that we had seen a similar level of uh, something comparable to that from flow crew who, who are the other kind of like weirdo, not like everybody else clan, you yeah, know, like, yeah. because they're not geographically based, like Trishana crew lives here and tree crew lives here. And, you know, and whatever other crew lives here, like they're just sort of based on, uh, based on place and based on, um, you know, family and you know and birth presumably and then Floku is also sort of an outlier and and yet like you said like in in a lot of the government negotiation kinds of plot their ambassador does not behave like an outlier in the way that ice nations does and yeah and i think some of that i think is just like the you know there's only so much ground that you can cover. Twelve clans is a lot to juggle. Um, it's it's hard to make room to give, you know, all of them sort of like a place in the sun. And so really everything we know about Flow Crew is basically kind of filtered through Luna as a person, as kind of like the embodiment of what they stand for. But it is interesting that like there are other Flow Crew characters like their ambassador and they don't necessarily behave in a way that feels in line with kind of culture that Luna has built. So I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I think it's it's also possible that Flukru was more was more of a kind of like regular clan in line with other clans prior to Luna taking over. We don't know how she took over. She that's just true. Back and like, yeah. It was like, that's where she's from and she returned and they're sort of like, well, you know, if they sort of recognize the inherent specialness of night blood and and she became the leader and then she kind of made it this new thing oh that's a good point like we don't actually know yeah so that's that is another possibility that that the sort of uniqueness is just luna and that it's not something that historically held i sort of i sort of like that better um, actually because that that does a a clear job of explaining why um why this sort of like flow crew, the home for refugees is a thing that Lincoln links specifically to Luna. Like he doesn't say this clan, right? He doesn't say this clan takes in people and you'll be safe there. He says like my friend Luna leads this clan and she will take you. in. it's like, Luna's the one who has these beliefs. Luna's the one who's made it into this sort of like refugee place. But, but potentially, you know, 80% of the people who live on that rig were born on that rig because that's just like where their clan Live. So that would make that would make that right. make more sense. Why like the ambassador is like a standard issue <clears throat> grounder ambassador who does that job, and that it's Luna who has the kind of like outlier beliefs. That would that would make sense. Right, 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 right. And then and then the kind of like the way that uh, the the rig is when they visit it is sort of interestingly more of like a, a cult of personality yeah. built around Luna yeah. herself. Um, which, you know, which when you, when you kind of put Luna with the other sorts of cult of personality type leaders that we have at the show is interesting. Mm-hmm. You know, if you sort of compare her to Jaha or, or, um, or, or even Ali or Becca or whatever, you know, I think it's, I think it's mm-hmm. kind of an interesting juxtaposition, but anyway, um, do you have other things to say about Clark and Finn and, Lincoln? um, 
I don't think so. I I think yeah, I think essentially like you said the the that storyline mostly rewatching it now is sort of like easter egg after easter egg about how season 2 is going to play out and mm-hmm. the only big piece of finale plot that it moves forward is um is sort of setting up that that tension maybe this is a good transition back to the camp story that tension between Clark and Bellamy over what the right solution is for um for how to handle the arriving ground army do they pack up their stuff and go find luna or do they you know dig in and stay and fight and declare war and we kind of leave that question unresolved at the end of it but that's sort of i think facilitating another big you know clark decision making leader versus bellamy decision making leader kind of head-to-head moment i think is another big piece of of that and then also yeah Finn's yeah. i love you and clark is basically like no and that felt good. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, and my favorite part of that is where Clark totally shuts Finn down. Yeah. That's just, you know, mm-hmm. definitely yeah. the, the most, the most uh, satisfying part of anything that happens involving them. <laughs> Co-signed. <laughs> uh, suck it, Finn. <laughs> um, <laughs> okay, so uh, in back in the dropship camp, um, my poor baby Bellamy is just absolutely scared out of his wits that everyone's going to die. And so he's being a big old meanie jerk, <laughs> yelling at everyone to work harder. <laughs> <laughs> I think this is, this, I think this is my favorite Bellamy episode in season one. It's like, it's tough. Cause there's a lot of Bellamy episodes that I love and, you know, his sister's keeper is a great one and everything. But I think this is the one just because like, for one thing, like Bob just is, just kills it as usual. But I mean, I think he does such a good job of sort of playing, like making that fear that's driving Bellamy really mm-hmm. palpable. Um, yeah, he is, he but, is circling uh, the drain think, in this like, episode. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's really interesting to sort of watch, like if we're thinking about sort of like the big leadership themes that the show has developed over four seasons, particularly with Bellamy and Clark, um, but like also in general between sort of like those tensions between big picture versus sort of more personal mm-hmm. leadership or big picture versus individual needs and then and then the kind of head versus heart. Um, you know, it's also interesting to kind of see like like without Clark, you know, like this is the first time Bellamy's trying to lead without Clark after they've been partners. Yeah. You know, like it's before it's since he's kind of, they've kind of come to be this unit. And, um, and, and so you can see him like trying really, really hard to like lead with his head, you know, like he's trying to think big picture. He's trying to think about like, I can't, we can't spare resources to go save three individual people. You know, Mm -hmm. we have to, we have to stay here and keep working to build defenses to defend the rest of us. And, you know, so you can sort of see his fear and also the sort of tension and his regret building you know like this is not a natural thing i think for bellamy to decide right like that's very much more of a like a clark kind of head decision mm-hmm. um which i think jasper points out when he says when he you know points at the hypocrisy of like you're telling me we can't go after these three people and if, if it was your sister you'd exactly kind of has this moment yeah of, like you can see he's like i know i'm being a giant bastard and i'm yeah. horrible but like he's trying to do what he genuinely thinks is best mm-hmm. and so this is like again one of those moments i think where the show does like such a great job of kind of like setting up 
setting up a situation where genuinely there is no easy or correct answer. You know, like Bellamy isn't wrong that they really, that it, it would not be smart in the kind of big picture to like take away a bunch of people and guns to go find a few people who are probably dead, mm. you know? Um, but at the same time, you know, it's also like he he has to decide to let some people die. And that's also really, you know, kind of like something that eats him alive and is and clearly is like upsetting to the people around him. Yeah. And so um Well yeah. and I and I wondered, I, I had a moment wondering watching this, like when you know, when when they talk about um so first of all, it it's very it's chilling anytime they talk about Clark and Finn and Monty as though the three of them are together and we know that they are not and we don't yeah. know where Monty is. Yeah. And so every time that mm-hmm. comes up where everyone is like, oh yeah, Clark Finn Monty, I'm just like, ah. you know, like it, it's just, it's a little like <laughs> spooky, sinister moment of like, at this point, like we don't actually have any idea what's happened to Monty, you know? Um, yeah. yeah. But, yeah. Uh, but I also, I found myself wondering, you know, when like, does he when he when he says like look we can't spare resources to go after the three of them like they're probably dead we have to stay here and you know survive like um i wondered if if that if that was sort of more like him reassuring himself like there wouldn't be anything you could do for those three anyway so that is why it is mm-hmm. the right decision for you to stay here because if he really thought that mm-hmm. the three of them were out there together alive and he could save them then it would make it it would it would cost him too much to realize he had to let that go so saying like look they're probably dead and gone i don't like it either but that's where we're at I, to me felt like is that is bellamy telling himself like Clark is dead. Clark's got to be dead. I can't go save her. Monty's dead. Finn is dead. We can't, like, I can't think, like, it's over. I can't, I can't spend mental energy, you know, because otherwise then it becomes this huge conflict and it makes it feel, he makes him feel less certain about the choice that he's already decided he has to make until the end when. I think you're totally right. It's like definitely like at least partly psychologically a defense. You know, like, because he knows that staying there and making sure he keeps everyone safe is more, is important. And he knows that there's no one else now to do that since he's alone. Mm -hmm. So he has to keep kind of like reconvincing himself. They're dead. They're dead. They've got to be dead. Exactly. Yeah. And then. Because it's kind of like he's fighting his own yes, instincts. Yes, yes, exactly. You know? And then Jasper kind and, of... Well, he's fighting his own instincts. He's also fighting his own fear. Yeah, and then and then Jasper, I think at the end, like, you know, I mean, both, I think, you know, being, like, being rescued from Murphy, like, you know, the, the his friends coming to save him, like, that whole thing. Plus also mm-hmm. just Jasper being Jasper. I think it gives Bellamy sort of emotional permission to feel like, no, you know what? You're right. Like, this is, like, this is what we do. Yeah. You know, we are, this is the people that we really yeah. are. Yeah. Um, and and lets him make that decision. And then ends up not being necessary because they, of course, then they come back. But that he was ready to, like, strap on guns and go. Um, but, yeah. Yeah, but I think, but I, <clears throat> but it did feel to me like, I don't think at any point he, he really fully, believed that they were dead it was just sort of like i have to tell myself this because otherwise i can't do the thing that i have to do next right and you know like it's really interesting to me i think you know the the sort of pattern that emerges and this is why this is why like bellamy and clark are 
always so much better as a unit, you know, than they are separately. Because I think this is also one of those moments where you can sort of see, like, like Bellamy is not good at that kind of right. decision making. You know, he does not because because it doesn't come naturally, mm-hmm. you know, so he feels like he has to shut off his heart in order to make that kind of like in order to to make the the correct big picture decision, the leader, the like, I'm the leader of this big group decision. He feels like he has to totally shut off the mm-hmm. part of himself that cares about individual people. And he can't like this is, you know, he he can't find that balance. So I think like there's a kind of like a nice way it plays out where he swung too far in that direction yeah. at the beginning where he isn't he's shutting down and he is he's not allowing himself to be open to those appeals even when everyone around him is making them, you know, when his when Raven is making them, Jasper or his sister um it's like like you said i think it, like it feels emotionally too dangerous mm. if he listens then he's afraid he's gonna like slip into um something and so like i think like i mean one reason i really love this episode is my favorite bellamy episode is because i think there are so many threads of bellamy's character in the arc that he has gone through over the course of the season that are sort of worked through in the arc of this episode and resolved really really well and one of them is that you know where you start out at the beginning where Bellamy's kind of re- re- returned to some version of the asshole leader that he right. was at the beginning. And now, of course, like, he's not being an asshole for for his his own selfishness. Right, right, yeah. You know, like, he's being an asshole because he's genuinely like, you fuckers have to keep working and you don't get to sleep because otherwise we all die. You know, like, he's genuinely, mm-hmm. like, concerned about everyone, but he's still, he's kind of returned to the, like, sort of more demagogish style that he had right. at the beginning. And over the course of the, you know, because he's trying to sort of like push down his instincts to care for, you know, for uh, individual people. And sort of like over the course of the episode, he has to relearn how to sort of like relearn how to like use his self-sacrificial instincts for good. You know, like how do you balance um, your willingness to sacrifice yourself for, you know, for everyone and for one person with the need to, cl- mm-hmm. you know, to, to protect everyone. And so this is when, like, it takes this sort of, like, arc of the episode for him to get to the end and realize, like, okay, if me and Jasper go, just the two of us, just two guns, mm-hmm. that's, like, the camp will not right. fall apart. It's not like if I leave, nothing will happen or they, there won't be any defenses. Like, we can spare these two and that's worth it for these people. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's like, there's, like, that, that sort of, like, mirrors his arc, I think. Um... And then, uh, yeah, and, like, I mean, obviously just, like, a lot of other little things. Like, Murphy's whole revenge plan is very sort of, I will now enact upon you right. the trauma that you enacted <laughs> upon me. You know, so, like, Bellamy has to kind of, like, relive the mistakes that he made at the beginning and in a new context and, like, really understand, to kind of, like, re-understand them. Um, and then, of course, all, like, the the Octavia, like, I... The, the Blake sibling stuff in this. This is there's great Blake sibling really content in this episode. Oh my god! Yeah, I was so emotional. Yeah, just like, just just Octavia standing outside, you know, like panicking and terrified. Um, you know, going from like yelling at him like you're not doing anything, what's wrong with you? To like, I lo- fuck no, I didn't mean go in there and die yourself. <laughs> I love. I always laugh so hard when she comes over and she's like in his face. She's like, "You're not doing anything. My friend is in there. You're just standing around." And then Raven comes over and she's like, "Yeah, hey, so you were right about that thing that you made me do because you actually had a whole plan." And then Octavia's like, "Sorry." <laughs> And I just like, <laughs> I just love the moment. And it's like, Octavia, 
find your chill. Like he was, you know, he was actually on it. But it is so like her realization. Yeah. And he doesn't he doesn't say I told you so. He just gives that look and she's like, yeah, okay. But um Yeah, it's like but, okay, but I but I what I like about that what I like about the juxtaposition of um, you know, the sort of I guess the three kind of core beats of Bellamy's storyline in in this episode um you know he like at first he's like you know he's he's trying you know he's trying to be the 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 kind of Clark pragmatist brain basically is like any of us extra like any of those people risking our lives additionally to save a handful of others is less important than everyone being here working towards saving the whole group and yet then the very right. next sort of significant thing that he does is is voluntarily like trade himself for Jasper. And yeah, yeah. And and yeah. it is it is probably because he he, you know, like yes, he has a plan. Yes, he's got Raven on it. Yes, he probably believes on some level like he can like that he can take Murphy, but he takes that risk for that one person. And I and so part of me wonders if if the flip of um his realization that he and Jasper actually do that, that he, that he wants to be the guy who goes out looking for her, his friends. They don't leave people behind that. He doesn't want to be the kind of leader who's like, well, sorry, you know, like acceptable losses. Yeah. Um, I, I think, yeah. I think some of that, <laughs> even though it's, it's separated into sort of two different parts of the story. I think it is, you know, I think the way Octavia looks at him when she, when she thinks that he's going to let, someone that you know that is like a core member of their group just die and and that sort of that that terrible picture in her head of like who he would be if he just let murphy just kill jasper you know i think that mm -hmm. um i think octavia and jasper sort of push bellamy into remembering like why why he is the leader that he is you know like that that he can't that he can't yeah. He can't live with himself as a person who's just kind of like, well, we lost three, you know. Um, well, and I also wonder if, it, if a piece of it isn't like he's convinced himself that Finn and Clark and Monty are lost. They're just lost, you know, mm -hmm. and there's and he can't save them. And and part of his sort of like desperate pushing to keep working and it, uh, denial of resources to go find them is part of, you know, is partly out of his guilt of feeling like he lost them, you know, so that when when Jasper gets taken by Murphy, also part of the reason he trades himself is because this is a person who he can yeah. save. There's three people he's yeah. lost that that he couldn't save, that there's nothing he can do about, and like this is a way for him, like this is a, this is a discreet thing happening right now, right in front of him he can stop Jasper yeah. from dying, you know. Um, we save who we can save today. Stop. Exactly, exactly. So I wonder if that's also a piece. Of, I mean, I think all of that sort of works together. So he doesn't want to be the guy he was trying to be because he felt like he had to right. be. And this is a way, this is a, this is a situation where he can, he can do what his heart kind of would dictate he should yeah. do. Um Although I do, I honestly do think that when he goes in there, I think he does believe that he can, I don't think he thinks he's going to die. I think he thinks that he can talk Murphy out of it. Um, because, you know, sort of like leaving, leading with his 
his persuasiveness is is what he's mm-hmm. done. You know, like what one of the things that um one of the the sort of skills that he has that Clark doesn't um is that kind of like crowd charisma. Um like he's a better persuasive yes. yeah. speaker, you know, like he was able to win over the hundred and she wasn't at the beginning. And so I think you know, so I think that he thinks, like, if Jasper's in there, Jasper's definitely yeah. going to die. If I go in there, I can probably talk my way out of it. You know, like, I can I can get Murphy, I can subdue him, or I can talk about him, or whatever. Um, and one thing I think is really interesting, too, from a kind of, like, from the standpoint of his, of the season-long arc uh, for Bellamy's character, I think one thing that is really, really interesting and also very transformative for Bellamy in there is the fact that he's conf- that, that he's confronted with the fact that he can't talk Murphy out of it. You know, that he tries and Murphy says to him, like, I know what you're doing. You know, like, I know what you're trying to do. I know your, I know your mm-hmm. MO, Bellamy. You know, like, I watched you play with these crowds and I've watched you give in to them. And Murphy isn't having it. You know, like, Murphy isn't mm-hmm. listening. And so you can kind of see the dawning realization Bellamy in there, like slowly, slowly realizing, like I'm not in control of this situation, and I'm actually going to give mm-hmm. my life um, for for Jasper. And I think, like that's, I think that's a kind of a moment um, where, like that's a, that's a more sort of subtle transformative moment because I think what you see is a shift there from a Bellamy who still kind of believed that he was removed from the rest of the hundred and that he could kind of like get them to do whatever he wanted them to do. You know, like if he told them to build, Mm -hmm. they'd build. If he told them to make landmines, they'd make landmines, you know, um, to kind of more of a moment of, it sort of like forces a humility on him. I think that that also, or a realization that he cannot exert the kind of control that he has wanted to exert because that's the way that he's sort of, dealt Mm -hmm. with fear and uncertainty is through kind of attempts to control, which is what he's doing at the beginning. So I think that's another thing that contributes to like at the end when he, when Murphy gets away and he turns to Jasper and he says, you and I, we are going to take a couple guns and we're going going to go do this thing. I think like that's partly is the sort of realization. Like I don't want to be the kind of leader who just like lets my people die um, when there's even a, a slight chance that I might be able to go get them. Um, but I think another part of it is him recognizing, like, a, a sort of kinship, a willingness to accept his kinship with mm-hmm. Jasper in a way that he hadn't before. He'd been sort of denying, it's like, you all, you and Raven, you're reacting emotionally about these people, but but I can't. Right. This is sort of a moment of him realizing, like, you and I, were the same, mm-hmm. you know? Like, we lost people, and we want to get also- them. And we're going to cooperatively go do it, you know? And it's also really, I think the... The transformation from the Bellamy who at the beginning was like, you know, willing to go along with somebody killing Jasper in his sleep because his like moans of pain were keeping everybody up at night and who found Jasper more an annoyance than anything else to like a bond between them really solidifying by the end of this episode that really carries through. I think, you know, like we've talked a little bit about like uh, big chunks of Jasper's arc in season two. I have always felt were sort of shaped by like his his kind of hero worship of Bellamy, his desire to be Bellamy, him sort of putting himself yeah. 
be, like rising to the occasion to become the Bellamy of the Mount Weather kids, doing the things that he thinks Bellamy would do. Yeah, um, yeah. And and I think Monty is sort of in Mount Weather. Monty thinks like what would Clark yes. do, but I think Jasper's Jasper thinks thinking, what would Bellamy do. In yeah. season two, what would Bellamy do? Very much so. Yeah, yeah. and and and. Over and over again, it's like Bellamy would put his body on the line, mm-hmm. which is what he does. You know, Bellamy would like go in there and, and yeah. Um, so Bellamy, so I, or, or Jasper sort of sees Bellamy as the leader who, who's leading by example, mm-hmm. you know, like really, truly like Bellamy, I think was trying to sort of like lead from the top down at the beginning of this episode. Um, but where his strengths are is in that leading by, by being or doing the thing that he wants people that he thinks is going to be mm-hmm. best, you know, so like. Let's lead by saving the people that we can save, you know. And I think that's when Bellamy's at his best. When when Bellamy is, you know, at his at his most heroic or is most successful as a leader, that's yeah. what he's doing. And I think that that's why I think there's a real cost to him in, you know, like at the beginning of this episode when Jasper realizes that Bellamy isn't going to go after their friends, and he's so like disgusted and disappointed in him and disdainful and the way he says like you know and Bellamy's like where are you going and he's like to get more gunpowder for your bombs sir with that kind of like sarcastic salute like like the way Mm -hmm. it feels for Bellamy to have Jasper that like disillusioned with him like I think it really costs him something Mm -hmm. you know like to see that and and like uh, again uh, we say this every time about at least somebody all the kudos in the world to Bob Morley for for being able to project the strain that that puts Mm -hmm. on Bellamy emotionally, you know, like how much tension is, is flooding him and controlling him in the beginning of this episode while at the same time, you know, sort of projecting that, that leader Bellamy. I mean, like the difference between the Bellamy, even just like Bellamy standing there silently, you know, at the beginning of the episode and the Bellamy who talks to Jasper at the end is just like, you know, they're worlds yeah. apart. You can see the strain at the beginning, how difficult it is for him to be this person that he's trying to be. And like you said, like the cost of what it costs him personally to have Jasper and his sister and Raven look at him the way that they mm-hmm. do versus at the end when he's sort of like, all right, let's do this thing. You know, I think you can, re- it's like, it's palpable. Um, yeah. And, uh, and, and so I think, yeah, so we sort of see... I, the one thing I have to say that I kind of go back and forth on is, um, you know, there's there's a kind of like certain sort of narrative uh, circularity or not circularity, just sort of like um, there's a certain kind of narrative satisfaction that comes from the beginning of of Bellamy's sort of leadership arc and this end of it happening around a hanging right yeah um and then the beginning of bellamy's sort of issues with murphy and the end of it sort of being organized around this this act of hanging and certainly that is like it is it is deliberate on the part of murphy like he does that because it's symbolic to murphy Mm -hmm. um but on the level that the old that the way that bellamy as a character this kind of final change happens is through this like extreme physical Mm -hmm. torture um, I don't know how exactly how I feel about that. <laughs> I sort of, 
I sort of go yeah. back and forth. Like I see, I see all the ways that it works narratively mm-hmm. and, you know, sort of tying together these things. But at the same time, there's like something about like change is forged, supposedly forged for Bellamy through this kind of like physical punishment that like just sort of niggles at me a little bit, you know, especially yeah. when combined with like Octavia beating him up in season three, you know, there's like this weird way where like for male characters, physical suffering seems to come with transformation in a way that it doesn't for female characters, which I think is an interesting. Yeah. Um, I, yeah, that's a good point. So I, I guess I, I totally hear what you're saying. I think I looked at that moment. um, I guess I was thinking of it less in terms of, um, and I I totally agree with you about um, the, the hangings as bookending, how they bookend an arc in Bellamy. And I was really sort of looking at it the more the way that they sort of loop in from Murphy. And the thing that I was thinking about Murphy. So, so Mm. I've, um, so obviously you and I have both been binge watching lost in order to be able to (laughs) um, discuss it in great depth with Joe Garfine. And, um, and so I, I am just (laughs) like, I'm, I just finished the end of season three last night. Um, and I was thinking as I was watching this episode this morning, um, about the, the sort of dark heartbreaking (laughs) parallel between Murphy and Sawyer where you have where where the mm. everybody else treating you like a murderer is the thing that turns you into a murderer when you weren't before but everybody makes mm-hmm. that assumption about you and that constant onslaught of um like where where like if you're like you're like a thief and a con artist and an asshole, but not a person who has taken a life. Yeah. Until the sort of like yeah. the pressure closing in of everybody um treating you like a murderer, turning on you, shunning you from the group, um, or demanding that you do violent things because you seem like the kind of person who is comfortable doing violent things, or the way isolation sort of turns you in. Like all of these sort of different yeah, forces yeah, at play yeah. where you have where we're in a whole different sort of situation under different influences, they could have become really different people, but that they they step over that line for the first time to take a life. And then each time after that, it becomes easier and easier because other people had already sort of preemptively decided this is who you are. And so for me, the um, yeah. the real gut punch of of this Murphy of this this um this real low point for Murphy shippers in this episode, um, <laughs> <laughs> or high point yeah. depending on. Uh, how well, that's true. My friend, yeah, my friend Miriam, my friend Miriam, who uh, is the person who got me into the show because she we were friends on Tumblr from the Robin Hood fandom, and um, and she started watching this, and she was like posting so much about it. That like eventually I started watching it, and she is why my tag for the hundred on Tumblr is "God damn it, Miriam." Because like at the time I was like, I don't have time for another TV show, and then I was, and then here we are, you know, like three years later, I think yeah, three or four years later, something like that. Um, and I have a podcast about it anyway. So her her ship tag for Murphy me was OTP. <laughs> so. So I think for a lot if of Murphy shippers, it's not a low point. True. This is the high point. If if you're <laughs> if if BDSM kink is your kink, this is excellent A plus content for you. Um, 
but I, so for me, on account of that not being my thing, um, and being a person with a... Let's not kick shame. No, 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 no. I, I, uh, you know, good for you, not for me, but, um, and I also, I have like, and I don't know where it comes from, I have a real visceral phobia about hanging and nooses. Like I like uh, like okay. people people getting shot and and pe- oh girl you got some shit coming no, at you. No, I know, lost. I know. I I'll and I only that. know that because I was tweeting about the hanging and like three people were like, "Are you talking about Lost or the Hundred? And I was like, "Well, I was talking about the Hundred, and now I'm scared." <laughs> but thanks for the spoilers. Yeah, great, thanks guys. Yeah, um, but uh, but yeah, but so so for me, so for me, the thing that that made that scene so. Um, harrowing was watching like um, what Murphy has become both because of his like isolation ostracization being tortured by the grounders being you know thrown out for a thing that he that he didn't do mm-hmm. you know the first thing he didn't was mm-hmm. something that he didn't do at all um, and yeah. and how that has precipitated since he returned to camp this thing that I found like the first time I watched season one so chilling when Murphy kills that kid and then acts like he didn't, which he does again this episode with Miles. Yeah. Like yeah. like that yeah, sort yeah. of really, really um spine chilling and sinister um he's become this like he's murdering everybody who had anything to do with you know with that hanging with what happened to him before and yet up until the moment that everything kind of snaps like up until Jasper sees through him with Miles um Murphy has more or less convinced people that like if he's not like a good guy again he's at least not an active threat you know and so there is this kind of layers of like um him trying to kind of like pull his way back in and then it just sort of cracks and shatters and we see like the full dark like the pain of who he has become yeah. you know and and how um how the thing that they did to him has has sort of you know he's become this person who's on this like vengeance quest and it all traces back to that sort of first moment of that kind of the group rejection, you know, the scapegoating kind of thing we talked about before. So it's just, yeah. so, so it's really heartbreaking. Well, and, and I think it, it, that is an important, there is an important moment of reckoning for Bellamy's character, I think, because, you know, up until this point, both Bellamy and the audience have been allowed to forget that his sort of like emergence as, his sort of like um, redemption and emergence as a kind of good leader of this group was predicated on the scapegoating of mm-hmm. Murphy and all that, you know, uh, and the shit that they did to him. And so, you know, so on that level, I think it like it was it was necessary and important. Like Bellamy needed to be reconfronted with like, look, you where you are right. now because of what yep. you did yep. to me, you know, and um, and and to some extent, like what Murphy did the reason he was this hated asshole is like, you know, not that, not that Bellamy is responsible for the things that Murphy did, but Bellamy made it possible in the early days. It made it, he made it possible for Murphy to be the petty tyrant that he became right. because Bellamy was like, I know this kid is going to be trouble, but if I get him on my side and if I give him just enough leeway to be an asshole while, you know, uh, you know, while, while getting him to respect me enough that I can keep him under my thumb, he'll be less of a pain in the ass. Exactly. Yeah. Like the approach. So, so like, so Bellamy, who has now moved past that, 
had to sort of like reconfront and re- and um and reconcile and apologize for what he had done to Murphy and you know like face the fact that like you want to be a different person now but you know where you are now is based on that so you need to sort of like recognize that and accept it before he can totally move forward and become like a truly you know better kind of redeemed person and leader so I think this was a sort of like thematically I think you're right like Murphy was on multiple levels a sort of loose thread that that needed to be mm-hmm. confronted um because he was he, he he did sort of like represent against his will all of this terrible shit from the early mm-hmm. days you know um and like and and you know murphy still has i think one of the most heartbreaking backstories of um what happened to him that got him landed in the in the um skybox you know and the sort of rejection by his parents and the anger that he has towards sort of everyone constantly like no one puts him first and so um so yeah i mean richard Harmon is just like such an amazing actor he's so, so good like, and he sells and it really, that pain yeah, like when and you, anger so well uh, yeah like and once once like now that we know what you know what he did to get put in the skybox which is just not something that any person with a soul would rightly consider a violent crime. I mean, like, this, like, this, like he yeah. stole, you know, he stole medicine to save his family. And then that, you know, and then it sort of blew up from there. Oh, no, 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 no. He didn't. No, no, no. Remember? He didn't steal the me- medicine. His Oh, that's, his, that's right. That's right. And then he killed. And was floated. And then his mother, his yes. mother drank herself to death, blaming him for her his father's death. And then I think he started. That's fire. right. That's right. Yeah, yeah. After okay, yeah. That's but it was I like forgot this, like, that. Like repeated yeah. traumas. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but like still, you know, like if you're a kid, like your dad does a self sacrificial thing to save you, and then your mom basically like spends the rest of her her like downward spiral into death, blaming you for that. Yeah. Like Jesus, like no child should have to, you know, go through that. Like that is something that would genuinely warp you. It doesn't make obviously again, of course, like this is an explanation, not an excuse. But um, but yeah, but I think like there's there's these layers I think that yeah. are so important. Yeah. Well, and I think it's a it's a cool something that that that's interesting about watching him at his like at this just very dark, very low moment for him in this episode. In contrast to you know where we know of where he ends in season four, I think is that we see a lot of like um, the the Murphy is a person, and we've talked about this before, like who who is in so much more urgent and desperate need for human connection and belonging than he will ever let on. And, yeah. And so, so all of this, like everything that has happened so far in season one with like Murphy's turn to the dark side is a manifestation of the like emotional and psychological pain, like in physical pain, but also psychological pain that was visited upon him by this violent rejection from the group. You know, like being mm-hmm. accused of something he didn't yeah. do, being thrown to the wolves. And and yet how, you know, what we see of how he ends season four is like it's not just the sort of that he that he has like he has a Mori, he has this person in a Mori that he like loves and like belongs with, but also this just really 
beautiful kind of like re-assimilation into being a core member of a group like not just having a more like having a person Mm -hmm. but being like a member of a community again who's like accepted and welcomed for who he is and so I'm just so he's one of the characters whose arc in season five I'm most interested in like who does Murphy become after six years of like having a family when we know that the Murphy that he becomes like here the Murphy he is now is because like isolation and rejection turned him into that. And so what's like what's the exact inverse yeah. of this of this hanging scene, you know? Well, and I think like you know the, the there are so many characters on the show that are so psychologically complex and well realized, but I think in a lot of ways uh, Murphy is one of the most psychologically well realized mm-hmm. because you know, if you think about like his backstory that um that his sort of original trauma is the loss of his family um, because of something out of his control that he was then unfairly blamed right. for. You know, so like, so it makes sense that he's desperate for acceptance and for family because he lost his family. That was like the sort of, that was the thing that triggered the behavior that landed him this in the skybox. And yet because of the sort of like, like imagine how much it would fuck you up if your own mother betrayed you and rejected you. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Like, so so his inability to accept acceptance yeah you know his like his deep need for family and acceptance but his like psychological simultaneously like automatic rejection and suspicion mm-hmm. of it makes perfect yeah. psychological yeah. sense yeah. you know and um and i think <clears throat> so like i think like slowly like in amori he found sort of one person who he could sort of rebuild that relationship with. And so I'm curious to see if like he's able to sort of slowly expand that again, because I think, you know, in, in, if you think about it in those terms, his sort of like acceptance into the fold of the hundred and then rejection and scapegoating again is a kind of like re-traumatization on the exact same yes. lines that it had been before. So it makes it like totally psychologically tracks that this is how extremely he would react yep. to it, you know, which I think is really, really fascinating and kind yeah. of amazing. Yeah. It's beautifully um, done. Yeah. And then, of course, the other thing in this episode, you know, in terms of Murphy and and things that tie into, like, long, long, series-long arcs is, of course, this is where Murphy shoots. Yes. Um, And it's not until season four that we see those two actually, you know, Mm -hmm. like, confront each other after, um, you know, Raven's been sort of struggling with this disability. And she they're sort of able she's able to to forgive him and sort of like reconcile with him which i think is another thing that's huge for murphy is you know he's he sort of like walks around acting as though he doesn't feel guilty for things but you know but he does and i think he's aware that like there are things that he's done that mean that he's automatically going to be rejected so i think being forgiven by raven who's the person who's still around still in the group whom he's wronged the most Mm -hmm. um I'm really mm. curious to see where his relationship with Raven. I am goes. too. And especially because, uh, and I think I didn't realize space. this until rewatching it today, he thinks it's Octavia, right? Like, he's not, like, he shoots Raven yeah. by accident. He has he's nothing not against shoot. Raven. Right. Yeah, exactly. He's shooting, he's aiming for Octavia because he's trying to hurt Bellamy as much. Exactly. As and so the, the um, whole, which adds a whole extra layer to, like, the the complexities of his guilt as it emerges like around what he did to Raven that he didn't set out to hurt her in particular like she had done nothing to him right 
she just happens to be the one who's under there trying to get Bellamy out. Yeah. Um, you know, so it's a it's a total. I mean, and he's just shooting wild. Right. Before, right. Yeah. Right. You know, I don't think it's not like even like, you know, who knows if he even thinks he's going to hit anybody. Um, so it's a kind of another slightly sort of removed repercussion mm-hmm. um, that he's forced to confront. Um, but yeah, this is I also have to say that on a slightly different note. Like these last two episodes of season one for me are like peak Braven. Yes. Because like, <laughs> you know, next episode we get, I'd pick you first. And then this episode, there's like so much good Bellamy and Raven stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah. So I'm just it's like a- this, this episode and the next episode, I'm just sort of like Braven Lark. Yes. Braven Lark. <laughs> oh my God. Yeah. The, the, cause the, the Braven in this episode is, is wonderful because it's a nice little, and, and again, in, yeah. in terms of foreshadowing what we might see in season five, um, the way yeah. that they strategize together, you know, the way, yeah, like the way, yeah, yeah. what it looks like when Raven and Bellamy come up with a joint plan. Exactly. Yep. Yeah. Yep. And the way that they, they sort of, the very, the tensions and then the sort of strengths that they have together and they're sort of like mutual recognition of each other's sort of strengths and talents and necessity, I think. Um, you yeah. know, like, like Bellamy just has like such endless faith. In oh him. yeah. Well, the um, fact that like he, you know, like when Octavia comes over and she's like, you're not doing anything, harumph, harumph, my friend's in there and you're just standing around. And, you know, and the fact that he has already like, like not just figured out like that he is doing something, but he is instantly identified like Raven can do this. There's probably a back way in. Raven can figure it out. She can yep. like, like yep. just the fact that she, she was of course the first person that he went to to like use her raven brain to solve this problem and then also we get to see like raven notices the hydrazine like we're also like we're putting together finale pieces but um but yeah but the fact that he like the fact that that you know octavia's perception is that he's just standing around and the reality is that the very first thing that he did was go to raven and be like all right let's think like just the way that they're like they the different strengths they have that sort of like coalesce together like they're just their two brains are just like ah oh, it's beautiful this is why i really love brave and lark as a unit mm-hmm. and i was so happy in season four when we got you know some little chunks of them and and i'm hopeful for some more in season five i'm curious yeah. you know when you put clark back into the sort of mix because like i think like, Bellamy and Clark obviously are, like, a really good unit because they complement each other's leadership strengths. But I think the three of them together, you sort of have, like, Clark is has a strength for sort of long-range strategic planning, for big picture, for sort of, um, you know, political, like, sort of big picture political stuff. Bellamy is very, very good at, you know, at, at implementing those kinds of plans. Like, Bellamy is really good at sort of recognizing who, who what the assets they have are and who has what mm-hmm. skills and then like motivating people. Like he's really good. He's the one who can go to Raven and be like, don't run away from your relationship. Yes. Problems. Yes. You're special. You're necessary. Yeah. You know, like I know you've got more brilliant stuff in there. Like he's, he's got the faith in her and he can sort of, and the ability to be like, I'm going to give you this challenge and you're going to do it. Um, and Raven is, has this sort of like unparalleled talent for like, you give me a problem, I solve it. You know, so they, and the sort of like three levels of leadership and like getting shit done, they're kind of the perfect unit. You know, like Clark's like, okay, big picture, we have to get X done. And Bellamy's like, all right, in order to get X done, we have like these people and these resources and these challenges. 
um, Raven, can you solve this practical problem, this practical problem, this practical problem? And then like, boom. Exactly. You know, <laughs> you're done. It's perfect. <laughs> uh, I love them. I love them so much. So as, as always, the solution to every problem. I know. I feel like um, if they would just listen to us, this is perfect. <laughs> Everyone will be happy. <laughs> exactly. Uh, yeah. So I think I got to wrap up because I have to go see Star Wars. Yes. Um, woo. All right. Speaking of OT3s, which will never happen, uh, Poe, Finn, and Ray's. Yes! Oh my gosh, don't tell me anything because I don't get a chance to see it until like after Christmas, but I'm so excited. I will not say, I will not say a word. Um, I will just dream my little dreamy dreams (laughs) (laughs) of Star Wars things that won't happen. I actually don't have any like particular things that I need to happen in Star Wars, which is really probably a good way to go in. I can't be disappointed. No hope, no disappointment. 2017. Uh, <laughs> so we will return in 2018 with uh, the final recap of our season one podcast, um, 113, which probably happened sometime early in January. Yeah, we'll definitely, we'll for sure have it to you before Unity Days. So we're aiming for the first like week of January. Um, yeah, and yes, and then we might have some other special podcast things yeah. happening after that, which would be cool. We have we have a few exciting sort of um, things going on some back burners. Uh, so when we're able to announce these things, we'll let you know. But we'll you can look forward to some more Unity Day or Unity Days, <laughs> some more Metastation content. Between now and whenever season five airs, um, including the trailer. Yes. Whenever the trailer happens, we'll do a podcast. Absolutely. Um, as soon as we possibly can, although, you know, holidays happening and I'm traveling and whatever. But anyway, I'm just <laughs> rambling at this point. <laughs> huh. This is new. This is going to be a fun, unedited listen well, for everybody. <laughs> yay! <laughs> We're idiots. <laughs> Woo! Uh, all righty. The end. <laughs> See you next time. Happy holidays. Happy holidays. Everyone. Have a good new year. Bye. Bye.